electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. On notice, Fitch ratings agency warning the U.S. government to get its act together on the debt ceiling and avoid default. The blame, the brinksmanship. This is looking like 2011 at this point. And the market impact. Brian Deese, who left his top economic post a few months ago, joins us in his first post-White House interview. Holding on to those last set of ideological demands is not worth the harm that we're going to inflict on the American economy. Target's Pride Month backlash. Crisis management pro Eric Desenhall on corporate America and social issues. For every company that takes one of these positions, there are 20 or 30 that are very careful and treading lightly and are not having these problems. Becky Quick and Brian Sullivan have those stories today, plus Chinese hackers, a recession overseas. I don't know how to say that in German. Energy Vende is what they say. And NVIDIA, the chip company's blowout quarter that may have changed our future. Like I was joking, I'm going to change the name of the show, Squawk Box AI. <laughs> it's Thursday, May 25th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Brian Sullivan. Welcome, Bri. Hey, good to see you, Becky. Other end of the spectrum here. I just came right from last call. Yeah, tails to tips. I just went right from that show to this one. It's perfect. It works. Good it morning. Works. We're good to, glad to see you here. Joe and Andrew are off today. First up today on the podcast, rating agency Fitch put the United States on notice. Officially called Rating Watch Negative, the U.S. AAA long-term foreign currency issuer default rating. Well, it's now on negative watch when it comes to a possible downgrade. That's due to political brinkmanship over the debt ceiling. This warning comes less than one week before the so-called X date, which is when the U.S. could default on its debt. That's June 1st, according to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Now, Fitch noted that it still expects Washington officials to arrive at a resolution before the deadline. But the markets, well, they still took a hit on the announcement. It came after the close Wednesday, but the Dow futures dipped, and it impacted one indicator that we have been watching very carefully. Let's get back to Becky. Treasury yields this morning um, as we continue to get closer to the date that is the X date uh, for when we may just run out of money for being able to pay our obligations as a country. The 10-year this morning uh, yielding 3.757%. And check this out. The two-year is all the way up to 4.415%. So all that activity, Brian, that we've been seeing in the short end in T-bills kind of playing its way into the to the longer end of the spectrum at this point. It's amazing too. to see the yield on some of these shorter instruments. I mean, you wonder oh where, all gosh, the bank, where, where all the bank deposits are going. I think we have our answer right there. Yeah, yesterday, by the way, the one-month T-bill was only at 5.5 and change. Now it's at 5.972%. So you're talking about almost 6% on a T-bill for getting repaid by the United States government a month from now versus, like, put that up against any of the corporate bonds that you might see. If you saw a yield like that on a stock, you'd say there's something wrong with the stock. 
Well, credit default swaps, which our viewers know, is the insurance on your debt effectively sort of measures the risk of your default risk. Credit default swap prices indicate a risk for U.S. default higher than the government bonds of Mexico, Brazil, Indonesia, or a few other nations. Yeah. That, by the way, and I can probably no knock on Brazil, stocks. lovely country, yeah. but they have defaulted right. many times. This is looking like 2011 at this point. You do have Fitch Don't coming say and saying you are on watch for a credit downgrade. Um, we'll see what happens with this. Yeah, and as an, of course, and again, we, we were talking about it last night on Last Call. No offense to Fitch, but of the three rating agencies, they probably have the least juice in terms of moving the market. I think if S&P comes out today or Moody's with a negative watch, potential downgrade, you might see some action. Of course, here's the thing I'll remind people about 2011. Because we were here, right? You were ho you woke up, squawk box. We had a credit downgrade. Yeah. Market went haywire. If you bought at that time to now, you did fairly well. You've made a lot. You've probably <laughs> more than doubled your money. Probably. We'll see. In Europe, the German economy entering a technical recession in the first quarter of this year as households there tighten spending. New data from the statistics office showed a downward revision to first quarter GDP from flat to a contraction of three-tenths of one percent. That followed a contraction of half a percentage point in the prior quarter. The statistics office said that German households spent 1.2 percent less in the first quarter because of that shock in energy prices. You can see stocks in Europe this morning barely budging on this. Yesterday they were down quite a bit more on the higher inflation read than expected that we got in the U.K. Uh, this morning the DAX is flat. Same basically with the France, uh, with France and the FTSE 100. Uh, basically across the board everybody's flat on this. What do you think about the German recession? Well, I always wonder when they say technical recession, what does that mean? It's okay, honey. We're in a, we're only well, in a. I mean, it hasn't been declared yet. I yeah. know, but you know what I mean. Like for the household, it's like sure. my my electricity bill is doubled in a year. But don't worry, it's only technical. I, I think. Listen, story I've covered obviously a lot, and thank God natural gas prices have come down yeah. tremendously. Ironically, because the weather. I mean, it's it's U.S. LNG supply, but demand destruction has caused prices to go down. The weather has been nearly perfect in the last 12 months or so. And of course, industrial usage has come down, which by the way, people are cheering like, yay, we got, that's bad. That means that you're not making stuff. 6.6 right. um, .6 million people as of this morning still in fuel poverty in the UK. Energy prices hopefully should come down, but the reality is when your electricity costs at home, take your bill, Becky at home, in this quick household or the Sullivan household, double it in 18 months, right. double, double it. We can eat Spending it. Spending on other stuff is going to come down. A lot, lot of working class families in Germany seeing a doubling in their electric bill in two years yeah. or a year and a half. They can't afford to do anything else, right? You're spending, you gotta pay the bill. There's now 20 million US households that are late in paying their utility bills. 20 million, that's a lot. It is. And prices are gonna go up this summer. Right, and that's with prices having come down below what had been expected. And people wonder, well, why is natural gas going down and my electricity bill going up? Number one is because it's you got about a six-month lag is the reason. So you're, you're, you're paying. Hopefully that bill will come down, but you're paying off the higher prices of before. Other countries yesterday, Becky, Belgium, Belgium, my mother's people said they're going to go back. They need nuclear. They were going to go off nuclear last year. Now they've woken up and realized, hey, maybe we should use nuclear. It's carbon-free and it's always on. Germany's going down. Germany's becoming the only country in Europe going down one path. And it's either going to be really right or really wrong. We'll see. I don't know how to say that in German, though. Energiewende is what they say, like the energy transition. 
Good, I don't know how to say, anybody know how to say good luck in German? Ich spucken sie kein Deutsch. I do not. Uh, no. I think they're saying move on in German right now, though. Microsoft out with a new warning. It says that Chinese state-sponsored hackers compromise critical U.S. cyber infrastructure across numerous industries with a focus on gathering intelligence. The National Security Administration issued a bulletin detailing how the hack works and how cybersecurity teams should respond. The attack is apparently still ongoing. The infiltration focused on communication infrastructure in Guam and other parts of the U.S. That was particularly alarming to U.S. intelligence services because Guam would be at the heart of an American military response in the case of an invasion of Taiwan. It's where a large part, Becky, of our B-1 bomber bases or bombers are based. Yeah, and look, if, if Microsoft has picked this up, if we know this is out there, couple that with the weather balloons, the weather balloons, spy balloons, satellites that they had sent over, and look, there's a lot of things that are happening. It's hard to know exactly how to connect the dots, but there is something here and something big. There, there are dots. I mean, and this is, by the way, folks, this is not some tinfoil. This is the U.S. government and Microsoft saying Chinese state-sponsored hackers have attacked on, you know, hacked critical infrastructure, including parts of Guam, where a U.S. military base is in a first response. Seems like kind of a, a big story. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to NVIDIA's conference call for the first quarter of fiscal 2024. With me today from NVIDIA are Jensen Huang, President and Chief Executive Officer. There's a trillion dollars installed in the global data center infrastructure based on the general purpose computing method of the last era. Companies are now racing to deploy accelerated computing for the generative AI era. Over the next decade, most of the world's data centers will be accelerated. NVIDIA shares are soaring, and this is a word we throw around a lot, but it really is needed here. NVIDIA shares up by 26% this morning after the company beat earnings expectations for the current quarter. Guidance shattered expectations, too, with what they're talking about, what they're seeing in this quarter that we're in right now. But if you check that out, that's a gain of almost $80 this morning. NVIDIA's earnings of $1.09 a share beat the street's expectations of just $0.92. Cents. Revenue of $7.2 billion came in above the $6.5 billion that the street was expecting, but it was really the guidance that got this thing off and running. The current quarter sales guidance of $11 billion shattered expectations of just over $7 billion. So you're talking about a massive upgrade from almost 50% improvement from what the street was expecting for this current quarter. The strong performance in NVIDIA's data center group shows that AI chips are becoming increasingly important for cloud providers and other companies that run large numbers of servers. With the after hours stock gain that you're talking about here, almost 26% increase, NVIDIA could add more than $185 billion to its market capitalization at the open today. That's a, a number that's equal to the entire market capitalization of its rival trip maker, AMD. This puts it on track to potentially become the first trillion dollar market cap company we've ever seen. Because if you add this up, it's close to $945 billion if you're going to be looking at these gains at the open on this. And this is a phenomenal run. I mean, they're talking about potentially a trillion dollars in existing data center chips that need to be upgraded and swapped out for AI chips. This is not like anything the street has ever seen. There were 21 analysts that rushed to kind of upgrade their price targets yesterday on this news, a lot of them bringing up their views, saying they had never seen anything like this. And validating to some extent, at least for NVIDIA, 
that this AI craze that so many people have said this cannot last. These stock price, these stock gains that we've seen can't last, not for everybody, but for Nvidia today, this is the story. It's weird. It's a it's a little weird to see a stock that if you have a, a small cap, yeah, low float, not a lot of shares out, goes up twenty five percent. We don't blink an eye. No, but it's one of the biggest companies in the world coming into this. To see a it's, already, it's already doubled its market cap this year before this number came out. To see it go up 25%, again, a gain of 185 to $190 billion, depending on where this rolls out. It gained as much market cap as AMD, I think, Exists, to your point, right. it is. Yes. It's wonderful news for NVIDIA shareholders. I just don't think in 25, whatever years you and I have been doing this. I've never seen anything like never this. Never seen anything like that. Never. Th that kind of a move although on that, that kind of a stock. Although I, I think it, it's very close to the market cap gains that you saw for Apple back in November. I think Apple actually may have been even slightly more than this. It's just a, a very rare thing to see something like this ever happen. You see some big moves, but this... On a quarter, by the way, that you could, nit you could nitpick the quarter and find things sure. that weren't that great. Yeah. It's just the, the dream of AI. And what does that mean? Like, I was joking, only half joking. I'm going to change the name of the show. <clears throat> Squawk Box AI. <laughs> Last right. call AI. Right. Well, it reminds you of so many other fads that we've seen in the past. you got to wonder if this lasts out. But what they said last night on the call about actual sales and what they're seeing. Trillion things. dollars. What, trillion dollars, they think. You know what all those data centers are going to need? What? Energy. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But don't tell anybody. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, the White House's former top economic advisor, Brian Deese, was director of the National Economic Council. He joins us on the state of the economy, the possibility of no debt ceiling deal, and the toll it could take on Americans. While there is prudent planning going on, there is no prudent plan that can evolve the chaos and confusion. And once we go past that, we will do damage that would be very hard to repair. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. All right, good Thursday morning and welcome or welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. As always, live from the beautiful NASDAQ market site in Bucolic Times Square. And two of the three people that you saw in that Bucolic? opening animation are not there. Bucolic? It's just, look at the greenery. It's just, uh. it's just gorgeous here. I am Brian Sullivan. Joe and Andrew are off. She needs no introduction. She is Becky Quick. Becky, good morning. Good morning. Good to have you here, Brian. Now to the debt ceiling standoff in Washington. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy saying yesterday negotiations were progressing toward a deal, but House members plan to leave the Capitol for a week-long recess. And last night, rating agency Fitch at the U.S.'s credit watch on for a possible downgrade. 
Kayla Tausche joining us now with more. Kayla, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Negotiators met for several hours at the White House yesterday. No breakthroughs to report as that X date nears. We await more news on exactly what happened for about four hours behind closed doors. And that new warning from Fitch sparking frustration and fear here in Washington. Republicans reiterating that is why they wanted to begin negotiating in February. And a White House and Treasury statement saying that the rating warning underscores the need for swift bipartisan action by Congress to raise or suspend the debt limit and avoid what they're calling a manufactured crisis for our economy. Yesterday, at least, optimism was scant. Democrats were airing frustrations on bad messaging and the process. And McCarthy's top negotiator was saying that we're past the responsible deadline for a deal. The major issue continues to be the overall spending level. And here's how Speaker McCarthy put it yesterday afternoon. It all comes down to, you know why we're here. Democrats in power spend too much money. We have our biggest debt ever. We have spent more money under the Democrat control than our expenditures in our 50-year history, uh, just on our average of GDP, but we're spending more than we've ever spent. And all of this while we're bringing in more money than at any other time. So that was the last time we heard from negotiators publicly, and you just heard Speaker McCarthy say that we know what it takes to get a deal. Well, we're also still waiting to hear what marching orders he's given his conference ahead of that week-long recess. Has he instructed them to stay behind? Has he instructed them that a deal could be reached in the coming days? Punchbowl News, for its part, is reporting this morning that there is some optimism, at least in the Republican camp, for a deal that could be struck within that time frame. The White House up until this point has not shared that optimism. We will see if that changes today based on what happened overnight, guys. But certainly with that warning from Fitch, you know, Brian, you mentioned the fact that Fitch is you know, not necessarily carrying the same power as the other ratings agencies, which um, grade the U.S. government on its ability to pay and its reputation worldwide. Fitch is just saying that, you know, essentially in this situation, it's getting a little too dicey and uh, injecting some more urgency here, Brian. Yeah, you know, and Kayla, we walked through last night on the show sort of the idea that maybe June 1st we could go by. Can you dig in a little more on that? Like that, that there, there are been people saying, as you've said, that maybe June 1st is not this hard date. Explain how that could be possible. How could we get through not only June, but maybe even the summer, even without a deal? Well, June 1st is not the date that all of the government's obligations for the entire month are due. They're spread out across the month, and the Bipartisan Policy Center has a calendar mapping out those payments um, that we've cited here on this show multiple times before. On June 2nd, for instance, you know there are payments to um, Social Security beneficiaries, military veterans who get benefits. There are several programs where payments are due on June 2nd. Then a few days after that, federal salaries are due. Then a few days after that, you have interest rates on sovereign debt that are due. So there's sort of a staggered effect over the two weeks between June 1st and June 15th when the Treasury is expected to get more corporate tax revenue. Uh, but the question is really what happens uh, if those payments are delayed? Could they even be delayed? And would Treasury's technology allow that to be the case? Because we can sit here and look at the calendar and say, um, let's cherry pick this one. This one's not important. This one can be delayed a few days. But um, I'm told by people who are really familiar with the the plumbing of the Treasury system that the payment the payments are automated. Um, that you know they're they're wired to be paid. They're not wired to be uncertain. 
and that it's really hard, if not impossible, to go in there and undo them, which is one of the reasons why Secretary Yellen is saying, I don't want to I don't want to be the one to do this grand experiment for the very first time ever. And looking at the calendar says that June 1st is the date. Now, the other issue, Brian, is that if you get to the point where federal salaries and payments to contractors cannot be made, there could be a full or partial government shutdown, which also adds a brand new element to all of this. And I know that is something that the White House wants to avoid as well. Um, so, you know, th- that's those are all the issues that are playing into that date. Fascinating. All computerized. Thank you, Kayla Tausche. Appreciate it. It has been a few months since we last heard from former White House National Economic Council Director Brian Deese, but he is joining us this morning in his first post-administration interview to share his thoughts on what's happening with the debt ceiling, the Fed, the banking crisis, and more. And Brian, thanks. It's great to see you in the studio. It's great to see you both. Okay, let's talk about what ha- what's happening with the debt ceiling, because this is weird. It's getting into some uncharted territory, it feels like. Um, we are getting very close to the X date. You think we'll have a deal? Do you think we will have it before the X date? Look, we are in uncharted territory, and it is weird and unfortunate. Uh, I think that the news that came out from Fitch overnight, I hope, um, will be a wake-up call for everybody involved here that this is getting real and can get really real, and the impacts can get very significant very quickly. Uh, And so uh, I hope that what we will see is that this kind of sign will jolt everybody at the negotiating table to say, you know what, the the sort of holding on to those last set of ideological demands is not worth uh, the harm that we're going to inflict on the American economy here. This is all macroeconomic downside here. This is all an unnecessary and an unintended uh, uh, risk factor to the economy. The sooner we take it off the table, the better, um, I hope. Uh, that we will uh, see a reasonable and rational agreement here. And I hope that the political system will actually be able to move it through before the X date. Uh, but given the circumstances we have today, the risk that we, uh, that we trip that in the other direction is higher than it's ever been. What, what's weird about this is the market, at least the equities market, stock market, doesn't seem to be too worried at all. You do see some activity in short-term Treasury bills. Um, that's where you've seen much higher yields. But other than that, people kind of think that this will get done because it has to get done without having that pressure from a stock market kind of drop. Maybe maybe it doesn't put that pressure on them. Look, I think what we've seen in prior crises is people are calm and confident until they're not. And the risk of pushing up to or beyond that point becomes compounded uh, if people really if people's expectations are are dashed. The second thing is this this brinksmanship, this 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 experiment in, in risk here can have longer lasting impacts, negative impacts. And what, this is why I say there's, it's all what would macroeconomic play, downside play, play here. Play it out in the macroeconomic. Well, so, so, I mean, uh, we saw in 2011 when we, when, our, when we got downgraded as a nation. It takes years to come back from that kind of thing. So uh, even if they're able to go up to or close to the X date and resolve this, Doing it at the last minute has consequences, economic consequences. The risk of uh, putting upward pressure on our borrowing rates because we lose our AAA status would far swamp any impact uh, that this deal would have economically. And so it's all negative. It's all downside. And so the sooner that we eliminate that risk, uh, the better. But, you know, we don't want to. There's a lot of conversation about what happens the day or two or three after the X date. And there's lots of planning going on on that uh, front. But, Meaning what? Prioritization of spending, which bills we pay, which bills we don't? But what we can do given the systems that we have. Um, but 
uh, all, I, all I can say is that while there is prudent planning going on, there is no prudent plan that can evolve the chaos and confusion. And once we go past that, we will do damage that will be very hard to repair, would take years to do, and all of that is economic cost with no, you know, with, with no attendant benefits. So the sooner we get this out of our way, the better. Look, it's a big game of chicken, though. If you listen to the Republicans on this, they'll say, we have a bill. We've passed a bill in the House. If you want them to not default, take it. Take it and do something with it. We've been trying to talk for months and months. It's only been very recent that the negotiations are there. It takes both sides to come to the table and say, okay, here's where we're going to give. Why have we not been able to find some common ground around that? Well, look, I'd say a couple of things. The first is I, I think that there is, has been and continues to be a common ground that can be found around the budget and budget levels. And in fact, that's how budget agreements happen consistently. Sure. Um, and I've been involved in debt ceiling increases uh, in the past. And if you look back in 2013, 2015, other times, you, you have a rational agreement around budget levels. And that's how you get things done. I think that what's different and what is particularly dangerous in this context is this close to the line, having anybody, and in this case, we are seeing this out of Republican leadership, basically say, it's not our obligation, it's not our responsibility to increase the debt limit, that is on the other side. That's an incredibly dangerous dynamic, uh, d dangerous to the economy, because if the debt limit is not understood as a shared responsibility and a core congressional priority, then the risk that we end up making an incredibly damaging error, either now or at some point down the road, goes up. And the markets, are going to the markets are going to internalize that risk. But aren't we going to be here again in March? As I understand it, even if we get a deal, we're likely to be back at a debt. First off, the debt ceiling was actually breached January 19th, was it not, Brian? January 19th. Right. So you end up with extraordinary measures. That so we've been, we've been limping along. The debt ceiling is not breached on this so-called X date. The debt ceiling was breached on January 19th, and we've limped along. Number one, could we be here again in less than a year? Number two, we did something on my show last night that there is a scenario where you could go past this June 1st deadline, slowing bill payments, wait for the quarterly tax collections June 15th, kind of do it again, limp along to these quarterly tax collections. How hard do you think that so-called X date is. Well, so in your first point, uh, I think that the, the negotiators are focused on how you could get an agreement that would extend the debt ceiling beyond uh, 2024. And I think that the that- The president does not want to have to do this again next year because I'm told there's an election. I don't know if you heard, do you hear about this? Unbelievable. Look, I don't think anybody, any rational person who cares about our economy uh, should want to do this uh, next year. I don't want to year. do this again. And frankly, I don't, want to talk I don't think we should again. do this. I don't think we do, do this. <laughs> it's annoying. Isn't it, it is. Look, I think I think that this entire episode underscores, sadly, why we need to we need to get rid of the debt limit and the debt limit uh, uh, drama entirely in our economy. This is just unintended. Look, the but only thing I will say is yeah. that the, we, the budget talks are never very serious. It's a tool for negotiating, and that's what it's being used for. Why not get something like a commission out of this that would a Simpson Bowles commission as, yeah. as much Bingo. as that didn't work because it wasn't made mandatory, but let's get a Simpson-Bowles commission that actually has some teeth. Look, I think that the, there is a, a fallacy that the debt limit can become leverage to have a rational fiscal conversation. And that has never actually become the case. And it's in no small part because the debt limit itself is so existential. And so if anyone says, this is gonna be my bargaining chip, immediately you end up in a situation where you're not having a rational fiscal conversation. Okay, that's a fair point. I, uh, Warren Buffett, we need to have years a fiscal ago, conversation. said, 
look, we have nuclear weapons, but we don't use them. We, uh, we need to have a fiscal conversation. We need to have a serious fiscal conversation. But this episode is a good example. We started this conversation taking revenue off the table, taking entitlements off the table, saying on defense spending that, that we would increase defense spending. So what you're left with is 7% of our spending and revenue to even debate around in the first place. Which is never going to make a dent. It's never going to make a dent. I mean, it's, it's like going and saying, I want to lose weight, but I'm going to focus on having a couple fewer bites at Sunday brunch. But can you... That's, that's <clears> what we, the, the whole conversation is about. 60 minutes last Sunday, okay. Um, talking about defense overspending. We know this has been going on the $10,000 toilet seat of the 1990s. CNBC, numerous reports, $100 billion a year, a year in waste, fraud, and abuse, largely you know, in Medicaid and Medicare, bills being sent to identity fraudsters, Russian hackers, whatever it may be. Can you at least agree, I think there's a frustration in the American public to say, why doesn't the federal government just act like a rational business? And if we actually cleaned up a lot of these garbage payments going to you know, hackers in Russia versus women and men who need it here in the States, that we wouldn't even have this debate. We could probably find two to $300 billion in savings, which is not cutting anything. It's just making sure we don't pay the wrong people. I think that's the frustration is that the government just wastes money, both parties, by the way. I would say they spend like drunken sailors, but it's Fleet Week. I met some drunken sailors last night, true story, and I don't want to insult them. So, so look, <laughs> uh, look, I think um, on the one hand, should we improve program integrity? Should we demonstrate that we can actually be effective stewards of taxpayer dollars? Absolutely. And are there places where we can make big strides on that? Unemployment insurance is a great example. Effectively spent resources on going after fraud and abuse in that program uh, can return five, six, seven dollars uh, for every dollar that you. But another place that you can do that is in tax enforcement. That our system of tax enforcement has become so broken and so worn down that people can operate through the system and basically avoid paying taxes uh, by hiring very expensive uh, lawyers and accountants. In all of those cases, by demonstrating that you can do more inf- effective government uh, yeah. engagement, you can, uh, you can get high return, five, six, seven, eight dollars of return uh, for every dollar invested. And at the same time, that's not the solution to our long-term fiscal problems. It's a, important to show and build trust for the American people that we can actually uh, collect the taxes that are owed, that we can actually spend dollars effectively. Absolutely. But we also are going to need to actually change structurally, yeah, change it, revenue, change spending. And change that's spending not a conversation that's and, done effectively. And get into conversations that have been third rails politically that nobody wants to talk about. Yeah. Hey, Brian, thank you for coming in. It's really good to see you. It's great to see you both. Brian Deese. Next on Squawk Pod, the war over woke author and crisis management expert Eric Desenhall on how companies are striking the balance between activism and capitalism, or trying to. They want everyone to love them. But now they're in the politics business, where you don't get everybody, you often just get 50%. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 
You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Up on Becky. Thank you. At CNBC's inaugural CEO Summit, Nike CEO John Donahoe and former Merck CEO Ken Frazier weighed in on corporations taking a stand on social issues. I think the important thing is to figure out which of the issues are core to your own company's values or core to our business, core to our purpose and mission. And we speak out on those. And then other issues we may care about, we won't necessarily publicly comment on. We listen to our athletes and to our consumer about what they care about. And they care about racial and social justice. I don't think CEOs get paid to get in the middle of every political dispute. But I also believe that what makes our country successful and what allows our businesses to be successful is that we have some fundamental principles of our democracy. Respect for property, uh, the ability of people to elect their representatives, a peaceful transfer of power, equal opportunity. Those are not partisan political issues. Target is the latest company to straddle a cultural divide. The retailer removing some of its pride-related merchandise after confrontational shoppers threatened store employees' sense of safety. Joining us right now with how corporate America can navigate the divisive war over woke is Eric Desenhall. He is the CEO of corporate consulting firm Desenhall Resources. He's also authored 11 books on crisis communications. And Eric, let's just lay out what happened at Target. It's the, uh, there's a front-page story in the Wall Street Journal today about it. Uh, this came out with some transgender-friendly swimsuit. There was a label that highlighted its tuck-friendly construction. Somebody picked that up online and said that they were marketing that to children. That swimsuit itself was not. It was for adults, but they did have other things for kids' swimsuits that were related to it, like a, a pride-related kids' swimsuit with a black swim skirt that was marketed as thoroughly fit for multiple gender uh, expressions. And that is what really kicked things off. Initially, they kind of doubled down on it. The CEO said that he was going to be standing firm, that this is something they've done for a long time and they were going to keep with it. Uh, but then they changed their mind and said, no, it was a problem for staff, that there were uh, shoppers who were very angry about these things and made those uh, staff members feel unsafe. They've now managed to like, really inflame things on both sides. They've got Gavin Newsom and others saying that they have backed down and shouldn't have caved. What do you do? Well, what you do is triage. And you look at what the, the worst situation is and you try to cauterize it. And the worst situation right now that's on the table uh, is violence and damage to their em employees. One of the things it's important to understand about these companies is they are very sensitive. They want everyone to love them. But now they're in the politics business where you don't get everybody. You often just get 50%. And that is what you have to, to sit and bear down if you're going to do it. It's also important to understand what is happening inside these companies. The whole myth is that these woke decisions are driven by the marketplace. They are not always driven by the marketplace. They are often driven by the personal agendas of many of the people who are in the advertising, marketing, and communications discipline who are going into management and positioning their personal views as what is best for the company. And for every company that takes one of these positions, there are 20 or 30 that are very careful and treading lightly and are not having these problems. It's important to keep in mind, though, you can't believe the whole go woke, go broke 
uh, overstatement. You heard from the CEO of Nike. Nike takes positions that are often considered woke. That is absolutely appropriate for who their market is. The problem is when you are taking positions that are showing a lot of hostility to many of your customers. So did Target mess up by having this in the first place? Did they mess up by Probably. taking it out? Probably. Look, I mean, uh, it's a gross oversimplification, but you are dealing uh, with consumers, in this case, in the South, who are very concerned about some of these issues being raised. And the issue uh, is often don't do something that will provoke a large number of your customers. I think with Target and similarly recently with Anheuser-Busch, you are giving a very aggressive gesture uh, to many of your consumers, and the result is the result. And yes, some people are going to be offended. A lot of people are going to be defended, uh, offended, but it doesn't mean you have to take these positions on the front end that are going to explode like this. This is not happening to every company. Did Target do more? I mean, the, the, they say that this is something they've been doing for years, having this. Did they make it more front and center this time around? Did they push it a little too far? Or is it the cultural environment where people are kind of looking for things to say, hey, you shouldn't be doing this? It's both. I mean, you now have an experience, a situation where there are people who are looking for uh, points of outrage, and they are, and they're finding it. And I think that that it is not a comfortable thing for companies to be getting into this business. A friend of mine who is in the gay marketing business was saying all of this that's going on right now is coming from the extreme right. Uh, it is not coming just from the extreme right. You have a lot of people who are moderates. Uh, and even people who are gay activists and feminist activists who are very quietly whispering in the ears of people like me saying, we're having some problems with this, but we're never going to get on TV and talk about it. And no company that has been able to dodge this is going to get on CNBC and tell you why. Mm -hmm. Eric, thank you. Eric Desenhall, great to see you. You bet. Thanks. I want to thank Brian Sullivan for being here today. Make sure you join him tonight on Last Call at 7 p.m. Thank you. you it's good, good to be here. Good to have you. And thanks for listening to Squawk Pod today. Great to have you here today and every day. Please follow this podcast on your favorite platform. Tell a friend to follow and let us know what you think. You can find us on Twitter at Squawk CNBC or write a review for those of you who listen on Apple Podcasts. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And Squawk Pod, we'll meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.